Okay, now let me just see if I can get this straight. You're mortal there, but you're immortal here until you kill all the guys from there who have come here, and then you're mortal here. Unless you go back there, or some more guys from there come here, in which case you become immortal here, again. Something like that. Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the films that time forgot. I'm Gareth Green and joining me, as always, is my full-time co-host and part-time immortal warrior, the one and only Andrew Phillips. There can be only one. And today we're crossing swords with Russell Mulcahy's Highlander 2 The Quickening. Does this much maligned sequel deserve the prize of a second chance? Or can there be only one film worth watching in this tired franchise? All that and more to come, but first the trailer. centuries on Earth, nothing could have prepared them for the quickening. Christopher Lambert, Sean Connery, Highlander 2, The Quickening. Christopher Lambert returns as the most French Scotsman to have ever graced a cinema screen since Highlander in Highlander 2, The Quickening. Russell Mulcahy's sequel casts a titular Highlander in the distant future of 2024, in a time when the ozone layer has been destroyed and the entire population of the world is seemingly protected by an electronic shield controlled by a shady corporation imaginatively titled The Shield Corporation. (laughs) All this somehow has something to do with immortal alien warriors from a distant planet tasked with decapitating each other in order to win a game. Sean Connery returns to the series for reasons, while Virginia Madsen and Michael Ironside pretend they know what the fuck is going on. (laughs) Which is something I imagine we're both going to be doing throughout the entirety of this podcast. Yes. (laughs) So, Andy, you nominated Highlander 2, so I have to hand you the floor. Why did you pick Highlander 2 for Best Forgotten Movies, and which version did you choose? Well, today I'm nominating all versions of Highlander 2 because <laughs> it's such a fascinating film to examine anyway and it's a film that when it was first released got such a harsh reception that I think people almost wanted to brush it under a rug and pretend it never happened yeah. but through its popularity on home video gained um, a second and third lease of life through various re-edits because this is a film that was never released in its intended version and still isn't really. But it's a very good film to look at as a fascinating mess 
Um, there's lots of different reasons as to why the film is the way it is. And there's a wealth of stories about the finished results. Yeah. So I say it's forgotten in the sense that I think it's a film that's talked about a lot, but is rarely viewed by people. Yeah, and I'm sure we're only going to scratch the surface of just what happened with this film. But even so, there is just so much to talk about. Because anything that could go wrong with a film went wrong with Highlander yeah. 2. This is a nightmare production. It really is. So I imagine this is a film then that you are familiar with. Yeah, I mean, I was only introduced to it probably about five years ago i'd heard about it a long time before and i'd heard that it was bad yeah although at the time i hadn't heard that there was a a renegade version or even a director's cut version i just heard that the original release of it was so terrible that it was regarded as one of the very worst films of all time which is technically not true and we'll go into that later on i think the very first version i actually saw of it was the director's cut version which i just saw i can't remember i got it i think i saw it on youtube or somewhere electronically yeah and then it's only recently in the last week or so that i've actually seen the american cut which is by far the worst version of the film i think that's the actual bonding cut pretty much yeah and it was actually the first version of the film that i had seen yeah i was quite late to this highlander boat party yeah yeah (laughs) you know i saw the animated series before i saw anything else Oh, there was an animated there series, was an animated wasn't there? Series, yeah, yeah, of course there was. There was an animated series of everything in the yeah. 90s. <laughs> there was. But um, yeah, I was quite late to the boat. And um, I very much enjoyed Highlander when I did see it, which was only about three or four years ago. Uh, I thought it was fun. A lot of fun. Perhaps not quite the classic that other people say it is yeah, or I think the fans hold it as, but that's something that we are going to discuss. I think that's something we're both in agreement of. It's best to make clear now that we both find Highlander 1 an enjoyable film. It is by no means a classic film, uh, or even a cult classic, really. It's, for me, a, a solid 3 out of 5 film. Yeah, it's a promising start that shows potential. Yeah, but it's it's a bit too cheesy for me. It is, but I, I do enjoy it. I want, yeah, it's very put inventive it out there. at times. I, I very much enjoy the film. I really enjoy mm. the filmmaking. And when I did watch Highlander 2, I watched the theatrical cut, which is the bonding cut, which was... Uh, <laughs> and it was just awful. And that killed any desire in me to follow this series on. So Highlander 2, is that's up to where I've seen in this series. And I've heard that it's never quite recovered, even though there have been multiple films since. Yeah. And TV series. Yeah. I think I caught half of a Highlander episode. It was pretty dire. I remember it being on TV, but it was never something I was interested in watching. Yeah. So I'm not a Highlander diehard fan. I'm just somebody that enjoys the first film and thinks that perhaps it shouldn't have gone further. Mm. But I'm sure we're going to talk more about that later. Yeah. So just what were the problems that the filmmakers encountered with Highlander 2? This was another film fraught with problems from conception to completion. Yeah. And even in its final form, which is this director's cut that we watched very recently, Mm. it's still not quite complete. Yeah, still severely flawed. Yeah. And has many, many issues not just surrounding the production, but with the general story and the way that the film's put together, it still falls way short of the filmmaker's intentions or even the audience's expectations for what this film could be or should be. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's probably worth going back to the end of Highlander 1 because this is a film that is entirely self-contained. That's Highlander 1. As Highlander 1. The film is very neatly wrapped up. Yes. There's no loose ends. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a couple of questions about the immortals, which are, in that film, completely surrounded in mystery. But as a story, it has a proper ending. Yeah, the story for Connor McLeod as a character is over. Mm. And as a self-contained film, it's quite fulfilling. 
Yeah, satisfying. It's satisfying, yeah. Mm. It does what it says it's going to do. And it feels like a very self-contained story that needn't go further. Mm. There are some ideas that I would have liked to have seen explored, which is um, everything to do with the immortals and the mystery surrounding them. I don't think explaining it quite so solidly works. Yeah. But that's where they've started with Highlander 2, is to try and add something to these these immortals and what their background is and where they come from. Yeah. But did they need to do it with Connor McCloud as a character? Because his story did feel so complete. Yeah. I think the most compelling element of Highlander is the idea of a man living forever and what does that feel like? Yes. And the joys and also the pains of living that life, as well as living with this inevitable conclusion in The Gathering. It's always baffled me that in all the versions of Highlander, all the different sequels and spin-offs, that that idea has never really been explored to the full. No. It's all about the trappings and the sword fights and the sci-fi elements. It's not about the psychological effects on this main character and the interest that can be garnered from having this character go through different eras and winning things and losing things and how that affects the character. Yes. If they did ever remake Highlander, I kind of wish that a proper filmmaker would make the film and write a film because there is a lot of potential in this material that you could explore in a very deep way. But I kind of feel that if it does ever get remade, because I know there was a, a recent attempt that failed, he'll probably get handed off to some sort of director dvd director and it'll be a bit shit yeah so it's gonna go to another music video director yeah which um isn't always bad everybody always uses david fincher as an example of a music video director it's definitely more missed but it is more missed than than not but let's not forget that russell mulcahy was a music video director himself that's what i mean yeah he he was so it it can happen it can work but then again russell mulcahy's career has never really taken off no in the way that it could have following highlander no i mean one of his last theatrical films was in fact resident evil extinction Wow. Mm. Yeah, it's been very up and down, mostly down. Especially following Highlander 2. Yes. But um, this film had a very definite end. I mean, when it was originally released, it did nothing in America. The advertising campaign for America was very poor. Fox, who were distributing the film, pretty much threw the film away. They released a poster that on the <laughs> documentary they refer to... As a, as a serial rapist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he lo- and he does look like a serial rapist it's, on the it looks US like poster. It looks like a horrible... just. Uh, it looks like a horror film from the poster. It's yeah. just a very extreme close-up on Christopher Lambert's face. Very grainy. In yeah. grainy black and white. And it... Jesus, it, it, it does look like a serial killer. It looks like Henry <laughs> Portrait of a Serial Killer. Yeah. Highlander. Portrait of a Serial Killer. Yeah. That's the film I want to see. Yeah. But in Europe and pretty much the rest of the world, it was a completely different story and it was a it was a modest hit. And there was a lot of interest and also quite a lot of pressure for them to actually make a sequel to this film. Well, and part of the reason that it was a hit was because of the home video sales, mm. even in America. So it's it's one of those films that's actually kind of blossomed in the boom of the home video market. There, yeah, there was a lot of support for a sequel to be made by many of the foreign distributors. I think no one expected to make a sequel to this film. No. So this was very much retroactively started. And there was a lot of pressure to take it in different directions. I think there were a lot of people wanting the questions of who these immortals were answered. And also there was other requirements. For example, everyone wanted Sean Connery back in the film, even though he'd been killed off quite definitely in the first film. There was a much pressure for him to be a main role rather than just a cameo in this film. So you had many different elements at play. 
already. So yeah. <laughs> even from the start, there was quite a lot of confusion as to what this sequel should actually be. And um, Bill Panzer and uh, his colleague Brian Clemens came up with the idea of where they should take these immortals. And they had the idea of making them aliens from this distant planet called Zeist. Yes. And then that got established and this got passed on to the screenwriter, the original screenwriter who rewrote the original script of Highlander, Peter Bellwood. And he was in charge of writing the screenplay. And he had the idea of taking the story further into the future and playing on this idea of the shield, which is the idea of the ozone layer being destroyed and the shield being set up and all the parallels that you can draw out of real life in that story. Yeah, I mean, I do have issues with that particular side of the film. Yeah, it deserves its own film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's something that we're going to get into, but yeah. it is definitely um, topical. It's, it definitely has something to say even about the day and age we live in now. Yeah. In its original form, this is about three films shoved into one. You've yeah. got the Immortals side, which is all the formalities and trappings from the original Highlander film, i.e. the decapitations and the sword fights. Then you've got the idea of Zeist, as yes. a planet and the whole culture surrounding that, which is completely separate from the original Highlander. And then you've got this shield situation as well, which is another thing entirely. At times, it does feel like somebody's took Blade Runner, Dune, and the original Highlander <laughs> and just kind of threw them together and yeah. hoped that something would form. Yes. And, and that's what the script feels like. It feels like a lot of different inspirations that have come together, but they're all button heads. Mm. So even on an ideas front, this film is already a bit of a mess yeah. before it even starts production. And this is not even the start of any real problems. So they were persuaded to make the film in Argentina, partly because of the locations and the fact that no one really made a big film in Argentina before. So it was quite exciting for them. Perhaps for good reason. But also the fact that they could cut the crew costs by about a third. Uh, than the crew of in... about eight to ten million dollars, yes. wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So there would be a lot more scope to make a much bigger film for less money. Yeah. Which, for any filmmaker, is an attractive notion. Of course, that's exactly where you're and, going to And uh, in their own words, they were seduced by Argentina. They were really uh, enamoured by the culture and the locations that they were able to find. And on paper, it looked like a sound decision. Yeah. And they just thought they had the right look. So it had great architecture, had some really great vehicles that they could use, and it had just the right look for the kind of story that they wanted to tell. And throughout the pre-production of this, they did manage to get Sean Connery involved in the film again. And for his role, which was written as a central role, I wouldn't say it's an important role, but it's he's in the film quite a lot. He doesn't actually do anything that impacts on the story whatsoever. Not at all, no. It's a bit like we were talking about the other week with 1941. This is a role that they would have had in the film and had he said no, they'd have just taken him out of the film yes. and it would have been the same film. He's in the film because the fans and the distributors wanted him in the film, not because he had something positive to contribute to the story. If you actually boil this film down, many of the problems just come from the fact that they followed the money too far. Yes. There's not enough talk about the creative decisions that were made mm. and why this decision was made for creative reasons. It's simply being all about... How much money can we save and where can we make the most money? Yes. And casting Sean Connery back in this film, despite his very definitive end in the last one, yeah. it's just purely for money reasons. Yeah. Although technically, on a budget standpoint, this wasn't the best money-making decision ever because no. for what amounted as six full days of work, Sean Connery got paid $3 million. <laughs> 
I remember reading somewhere that that was actually the most money that someone's been paid yeah. for the least amount of work at mm. the time. Yeah. Which is less than a week's worth yeah. of work on a film. And I'm amazed about how much footage they actually got of Sean Connery. Yeah. John S. Times. He must have been worked <laughs> for 23 hours of each day. <laughs> Even now, that is a quite lucrative figure for what amounts to 15 minutes of film, maybe less. Yeah. And literally six days of work. I mean, this was like 1990 as well. Yeah, and they so were shot this is like 89 as well, something e- like exactly. that. Exactly. So what is $3 million oh God. worth now? Probably about 10, 12 million, something like that. But yeah, when they started, they started off with a very small unit of UK and US crew and the majority of the crew was from Argentina. This quickly became problematic when the film's scope grew and they were faced with many different challenges not least the economic situation in Argentina and also the lack of resources and work ethic in yeah. Argentina, which was severely lacking. So They would take breaks willy-nilly, the crew. Yeah, just, just well... Just leaving the primary crew that has been sourced from elsewhere in the world, dumbfounded. Yeah, well, you do get it in certain cultures where you have this siesta culture. Yeah. Where you get all your stuff done in the morning and then when it's too hot, everyone has a siesta for two and a half yeah. hours. And then afterwards, you kind of do a bit of work, but it's quite a lot slower because your momentum's been lost. It's one of these things where if there's an hour that you can work, you need to be working or you're going to get behind. Yeah. And no matter where you are in the world, that's how it needs to work. For some industries and things, that works fine. But for something like this, it wasn't really appropriate. It quickly became problematic and I think they were getting behind schedule and things were costing a lot more. Although Argentina had the remnants of a film industry, yeah. it, it was really on its last legs and there were very few people who had the expertise and also there were very few resources available to them in order to get the film made. So they had to make do with secondhand scaffolding and not having any real experts in the field in the country that they were in. Yeah. And also just in terms of getting uh, props and costumes, they had to go to antique stores and second-hand shops rather than actual prop houses because there weren't any so it's one of those things where it looked great on paper but if they'd done their research more yeah. they would have discovered that this really wasn't the right place for them to go there's so many stories surrounding all of this i mean there's the famous story with the costume designer deborah everton and she recalls during the start of the film when they were getting all the costumes ready she asked one of her assistants who was argentinian she asked him for a safety pin And he goes into his office, unlocks a cabinet, and then unlocks another box inside. And inside is the department's only safety pin. (laughs) So this is the degree of how little resources they actually had out there. And the whole reasons for shooting in Argentina quickly went out the window when they basically had to hire everyone from outside and bring in all these elements that they were missing. So really, they didn't save any money at all. And it's probably actually cost them money. Yeah. And on top of that, all these other problems were impacting the safety of the shoot. And then also, we had the problem with the economy going down the tubes and the exchange rate just soaring. When they started, it was 575 Australis to the dollar. Towards the end of production, it was 6,250 Australis to the dollar. So you can see how much the inflation rate was going up as they were making the film. And there's a story that they used to go to a ice cream shop on the corner. And this was better than looking at the actual financial indexes because they could see every week 
the guy raising the price for certain regular items on the menu, they could gauge how much inflation had gone up due to these price rises. Oh my god. So, uh, yeah. Did this have anything to do with the Falklands War? No, I don't think it was. I mean, I'm not completely cleared up on the situation, but it may have been in part dictated by problems that they were having with the Falklands, but I'd imagine there's other reasons as well. Yes. But this is a situation that they were dealing with, and again, this is something that I don't think they'd done enough research on the country itself to no. really gauge whether this was an appropriate place to make a film of this kind. Yeah, and it does seem that way as well. I want to play a clip now, and this is from the documentary called Sanjis by Argentina, because this is Christopher Lambert adding his two cents onto the situation between the UK and Argentina, who were technically still at war at this point. So there was a lot of problems with the Argentinian crew and the British crew, and there was quite a lot of animosity between the two, obviously. And this is Christopher Lambert uh, trying to understand what all the fuss was about. The British Empire being at stake for what? Three rocks. Give it back. Give the rocks to the Argentinian. Who cares? There's nothing on these rocks. Not even a penguin. So not even a penguin <laughs> was on the Falkland Islands. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he's got a rather stunning grasp on the situation there. <laughs> I've always got time for Christopher Lambert talking. It's always amusing. I've never understood why he didn't become a stand-up comic. You know what? You could stand up there and just do his Scottish accent. That would be funny enough. Yeah. <laughs> So, with all these circumstances, it's amazing that they even got any film shot. Definitely. I'm really surprised that they didn't just close up shop and move out. And remount the whole film. Exactly, yeah. And just count the losses. Because that's what should have happened, but for some weird reason it didn't. And I think maybe some of these problems came a bit too late on in the day. They didn't realise that it was going to be so bad until they were well into it. So there was no turning back. But um, yeah, it's definitely one of those things that we can only view in hindsight. Of course. And hindsight's a bitch. (laughs) It's where the best lessons are learned. Yes. And we'll talk about the end of this production when we talk about the different versions of the film. But I think it's best now to go into the two new concepts that are introduced into the film. And this is the concept of Zeist and the concept of the shield. Okay, so in Highlander 1, they really leave these immortal characters rather ill-defined. It's all a bit wishy-washy around the edges. They don't really go into who they are, where they come from, yeah, yeah, or any of that mysticism. And one of the writers does say in retrospect that perhaps they should have left that alone. Yeah. But that didn't stop them. No. So instead we get this whole Zeiss situation, which uh, Zeiss is a... It's an alien planet. It's an alien planet. That's yeah. actually uh, ruled by these immortals who are at war. The Harkonnens. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's pure Dune. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, well, they're not actually immortal on their planet. It's just that one of their days is like so many of our years. Well, yes, that's in the script. It's not anywhere in the films. Oh, right. I think the screenplay was actually more structurally sound than any of the resulting films ever were. But for some weird reason, the logic and character motivations all unraveled as time went on and in terms of the production and also the various edits but in the original draft script of Highlander 2 it is explained that one day on Zeist is one whole year on Earth so this is how in terms of the story that we have in Highlander 2 Katana is able to interact with Connor even though it's been many hundreds of years yeah since they were originally exiled from the planet so in this form the Zeist version of Highlander 2 makes more sense than the later version that subsequently became in the Renegade and the director's cut. But this fact that one day equaled one year was eliminated from all versions of the film, and I don't know why, because it explains 
so much. It does, and there are still some kind of yeah, discrepancies with Highlander. It does rewrite a couple of things that yeah. happen in Highlander. Well, or there's, that, there's that a lot of ret- there's a lot of retroactive stuff because they were kind of forced into doing it because they were kind of still in a vice. I think it may have been more appropriate to have had a new character, like you were saying before. Yeah, definitely. But um, I think at this time, uh, in terms of the film climate, I don't think that would have been a choice that anybody c- would want to do. I can totally see why they've wanted yeah. to make it with Christopher Lambert. Yeah. Because they know it's going to make money. They know it's going to make money if they get Sean Connery involved. Or at least yeah. they think it is, anyway. Yeah. That's why the last one made money. Yeah. And that's why it was such a hit in France, because of this international cast. Yeah. And perhaps why it didn't quite land in America. Yeah. So, yeah, you get the idea that these immortals from Zeist... They're actually at war with each other. Yeah, in the varying versions of the film, which you get the idea that Ramirez is leading some sort of rebellion against this General Katana, who's played by Michael Ironside, and he doesn't want to lead the rebels, but he chooses Connor to be their leader, and they're somehow bonded together. They're sort of joined. They're almost like one person, in a way. Yeah. Through some sort of ritual that we're never told about. No, no. In fact, a lot of this is rather ill-defined. We don't know why they're rebelling. Nope. Or what they're rebelling for. Nope. We don't know who they're rebelling against, really, other than a couple of characters, and what they stand for. No. Because we never really find out what Katana stands for. He's just a bad guy. But we never see him do anything bad at the start to really establish why he's so bad. Yeah. He's just this crazy character. He's a bit like Wild Bill Kelso in 1941. He's just a yeah, crazy he is. character. he is, definitely. And his backstory... There is, there is none. <laughs> yeah, it, He's a uh, bad character. And Michael Einstein's clearly having a lot of fun with that character. Oh, yeah. But story-wise, there's nothing really being done with him whatsoever. Yeah. And he just seems to be there to be like a Diet Kurgan. Yeah, I have a lot of time for Michael Einstein. Yes. But in this film, he does come across as a pale imitation of Clancy Brown's Kurgan. It was one of the real high points for Highlander yeah. for me. Yeah. He, he's just fantastic. He eats up every scene that he's in. Yeah. This is just an attempt to recreate that character, but with no backstory at all. Because even though the Kurgan in the first film isn't the best defined character in the world, he still has a history with Connor. Yeah. Whereas in this film, Katana has zero history or beef with Connor as a character. I think this sets up straight away one of the problems that I have with Highlander 2 that I didn't have with Highlander. Mm. And Highlander is very simple. Even though it doesn't explain who these people are, it's a very simple story that is very easy to follow. And it works on that level. It lets um, the filmmakers and the characters do their thing. With Highlander 2, straight from the off, because they've got to somehow retrofit this onto Highlander, it just becomes very convoluted very quickly. I mean, even just on the idea that this film is called Highlander is problematic because later on in the film, although we now establish that they're either from Zeist or from a very long time ago, Whichever version the you very see. distant past. Both the characters of Ramirez and Katana refer to Connor when they're in the future scenes as Highlander. Yeah. When him being a Highlander is now only a very small part of Connor's life. It's only that little section that we see that he was living in the Highlands of Scotland. It doesn't account for any other parts of Connor's life where he's been in other situations. So even the fact that they reference to Connor as Highlander, there's a couple of scenes with uh, Katana and David Blake in the Shield Corporation later on in the film where Katana actually references Connor as Highlander. That's problematic in itself. 
because there's no reason for Katana to call him the Highlander. No, and to be honest, the whole thing with Katana doesn't make sense to me whatsoever. Oh, full stop. That, there's in, no in reason in either version no. of the film. I mean, with the Zeiss one, I don't get why he's so concerned about what's going on with Connor because he's so far away. And he seems so riled up about what Connor's doing on this distant planet. He decides he's going to intervene. And that's the Zeiss version. In the director's cut, he's watching from the past through some device he has into the future. And he can see that Connor's about to remember who he is and where he comes from. And that might define what he does from then onwards. And he decides that he's going to intervene before he remembers. Why doesn't he just look further into the future to see if he does or not? (laughs) <laughs> that, why, why is there this big question mark over whatever he does he's looking through a fucking time machine yeah this character is one of the most problematic and unnecessary bad guys in cinematic Definitely. history because he has zero motivation no. for doing what he's doing he's literally just there to be the bad guy to be honest you could actually take katana out of the film and just have connor battling against the shield corporation and you still have the same film well, that's a nice segue into the S.H.I.E.L.D. Corporation mm. side of the film. So what is so actually this is the, going on yeah. here? This is actually the main story. Yeah, so this is the other new element that's introduced into Highlander 2. And this is the whole idea that the ozone layer has gone. And Connor himself, in conjunction with another character called is it Dr. Alan Neymar. Yes, that's the one. They've created this installation called the S.H.I.E.L.D., and it's kind of implied that there's more than one, but this it mm. focuses on the original one, which is apparently called the December installation. And this is a big shield, which, depending on which version you see, is either a red shield or a blue shield <laughs> that covers the Earth and protects the Earth from the, the sun's ultraviolet radioactive yeah, rays. Yeah, Connor McLeod is instrumental in the construction of this shield as well. Yeah. Which I do actually like because there is a line at the very end of Highlander that says that um, after he goes through the massive quickening Mm. after killing Kurgan, he realizes he has a connection with everybody in the world, Mm. including, and he does mention by name, scientists, and he decides he's going to create peace. Mm. And I do like that they play on that, that he has all this information now. He is a smart individual. He's literally probably the smartest person in the world because he has the combined intelligence of all these scientists throughout the entire globe. And so I do like that they play on that with this, even though the S.H.I.E.L.D. element of the film does feel like it's come from a different film. Mm. I like that it does play into Connor McLeod's intelligence. It's probably the only time that they ever do play into the fact that he's the most intelligent person on Earth. And he's a sort of force for good yes. and in humanity, and yet he's resented by people for it. I like that idea. I don't think it's explored enough at all. No, no, because uh, there's, there's a scene very early in the film where a woman throws water in his face. Well, she kind of does more than that she does cut him in the oh arm. oh yeah she, she just she smashes a, a bottle and yeah, slashes and, at him yeah, yeah that's it yeah it's all because her life went to shit once the shield came up yeah because it's the idea that they did this and it was a necessary thing in order to protect the planet but it had massive side effects and consequences for life on earth so but do we ever really get into what those side effects and consequences are no I think they're mentioned <laughs> in passing but we never actually get to see any of this yeah i think they're the only- mentioned more in the making of documentary than they are in the actual <laughs> film the only thing that i actually see in the film itself about whatever consequence as, as a result of the shield that the people have to go through is that the sky's a little bit bluer it looks like the inside of a fucking rave yeah i think the idea is that it's always hot and humid and the earth is in a forever nighttime yeah it never it's never um it's never daylight really but it's never really impacted (laughs) but they're they're not dead that's the thing what i mean and it's it's never really explained 
why life is so bad. Yes, that's that's the problem I have. And it has something to do with the S.H.I.E.L.D. Corporation. It keeps all going back to them because we get to learn through the film that they're suppressing the facts that the ozone layer has repaired itself mm. and that the Earth is back to normal. Mm. But they're keeping up the S.H.I.E.L.D. because it makes them money. Yeah. Other than that, yeah. <laughs> other than that, why are the S.H.I.E.L.D. Corporation bad? What is it that they are doing that's actively destroying these people's lives? We, we never get to see. There is another problem with the shield corporation as well you get the idea that yes they're making a lot of money out of the shield but you'd have to be really insane to actually want to live under the shield for a day longer even if you were making a load of money why would that be worth more than actually seeing the real sky and having the earth back to normal yeah because you can make (laughs) a lot of money doing something else it's it's okay as a bad guy motivation but when you actually think about it, it doesn't really hold water that much. No, it doesn't, unfortunately. These are the two really opposing uh, yeah. plot strands that are going on mm. through the film. And each one of them feels like it's from a different film completely. Yeah. And right at the centre of it, you've got the Highlander. Yeah. And to segue into how the situation comes to be, at the end of the original Highlander, he's become a mortal man. And he has all this knowledge. And he's fallen in love with Brenda, who's the character played by Roxanne Hart in the original film. And what the... Who very much reminds me of Alice Lowe. I'd say half between Alice Lowe and Mariel Hemingway. Yeah, definitely, yeah. But, um... And that's the end of Highlander 1. And what the second film tries to segue... Well, what it tries to do in order to segue into this new story is immediately get rid of Brenda. Yeah. So it's the idea that the ozone layer has all but gone and people are getting skin cancer and burns and things. And there's this massive ward that you see in some versions of the film. (laughs) And, um... It's the idea that Brenda herself is dying and this is her dying wish that Connor will protect the rest of the planet, will save the as, planet. As if he wasn't going yeah. to anyway. Yeah. And, as um, a force for good. It's like, oh, please save these people. Like yeah. He was thinking, oh, maybe, maybe not. We'll yeah. see. I love. Uh, <laughs> but um, then it flashes forward. Well, this is a point of contention because in the British version of the film, it flashes forward another five years, which in terms of them building the shield... Still probably quite it's, quick, it's, but it's, yeah, it's, it's just it's about passable, plausible. Yeah. Yeah, for but this in kind the, of film, it's plausible. In the final version of the film, this is dated 1998, and then it flashes forward to 1999, so they built the shield in a year, <laughs> which I don't understand why they did that. It seems so stupid. It's like, oh, no, we had this shield already made. Oh, we, yeah. We didn't know what it was for, though. Yeah, and then it flashes forward, they build the shield, and they all think life is peachy, and then... And then it jumps forward to 2024. Now, the way this is all seeded is completely different depending on which version of the film you see. Yeah. But intrinsically, we start the film with Connor as an old man. Who sounds very much like an Italian old man. (laughs) So we have a Frenchman playing a Scot who actually sounds like an Italian mobster. Yeah. Which, it Thank just you, Charlie! It sounds like, uh, oh, what's his name from Godfather 2? Yeah, it's the character of Frank Pentangeli. That's the one. Yeah, who's the kind of replacement for Clemenza in Godfather Part yes. 2. And he has yeah. a very uh, hoarse, gravelly voice. And um, Christopher Lambert obviously had seen the Godfather Part 2 <laughs> and decided that this is what, his old version of Connor will sound like. Yeah, this is what his Scottish man is going to grow up into. In his preparation for the role. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine Christopher Lambert doing any kind of preparation for any role, no. but never mind. <laughs> maybe Mortal Kombat. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Only the real classics. Yeah. So, yeah, we start the film off with, with him as an old man. And there's actually a scene that tries to recapture 
some of Highlander 1, the way Highlander starts. Yeah. The boxing match in Highlander. Yeah. And it's replayed here, but with an opera, and to less success. I get what they're trying to do with Highlander. They were trying to um, juxtapose this boxing fight with the memory of the clans fighting and this idea of endless human violence forever ongoing and this one character living throughout all. And they try that again with Highlander 2 by setting the scene immediately with an opera and saying, this film's going to be more theatrical. And then it cuts almost to a space opera, which yeah. is June. Yeah. It's trying to do that again, but to less success because it's just not as interesting. Yeah, it's, it's not very exciting. For a film that's a huge space opera action film, having this rather long sequence start your film is probably not the best idea. I mean, it has some artistic merit in that it looks quite nice, but yeah. I would have to say it's probably one of the oddest opening shots of any film I've ever seen because it's just tonally really off. Yeah, and it's trying to tie together these two disparate plot elements. Yeah. But it doesn't quite work because the reason it works in Highlander is despite the film being quite silly, which it is, that opening, it's still tied together two different plot strands that felt part of the real world yeah in highlander 2 it's two different plot strands that i have no connection to whatsoever because they are both completely outlandish Mm. it's got no grounding yeah and it's it's through this sequence that we do get the backstory of the immortals and we see how ramirez and mcleod are exiled to earth at present time or either in the future depending which version you watch that basically shows how the events of Highlander 1 happen yeah. retroactively, but again, they throw up more problems than they solve. I mean, they do try and explain it away by saying, oh, you will have no memory of this past and only the mm. one remaining person after the game is complete will actually gain the knowledge of who they are and where they come from, mm. which is interesting in and of itself. But there's one thing that Highlander 1 does that keeps holding me back, yeah. which is you get the sense that Conor McLeod was born on Earth yeah. and that he grew up with a family and he grew up with a clan. You don't get the sense that when we first meet him that he's aware of the fact that he's immortal. Well, this is actually um, quite a crucial line in the script of Highlander 2. It's all in the fucking this script. Is, and this is all in the same piece of dialogue as well. This is just one line. And they took things out of this piece of dialogue which made this part make less sense so we've got the part that um one day unzeist is one year on earth yeah also within this speech we also get the idea that these characters are reborn on this planet to live their lives and they have no memory of these events they don't have any memory of this time they're literally reborn on the planet to live their lives through this way and it's only when the gathering happens that they know what to do which still is stretching it somewhat, but it still gives you a little bit more... All of these references are taken out of the film entirely. You know, again, uh, talking about problems with this film, especially threw up by these two different plot strands, which Mm. is Zeiss and the S.H.I.E.L.D. Corporation. And it could have been either one of those things Mm. if it just concentrated on being that thing. Yeah. I don't personally have any problems with a sequel trying to do something new with it. No. And you can't not say this film wasn't trying to do something new with the idea of Highlander. That's what makes it actually interesting as a film for yeah. me is because you can see that the filmmakers are trying yeah. to do something completely different and sometimes that works. Yeah, because just to compare this with Highlander 3, which yes. is a film that came out in the aftermath of this, and uh, almost consciously they basically remade Highlander 1 with slightly different cast and a slightly different location. Doesn't it cast Christopher Lambert in the Ramirez role? 
in no. Highlander 3. No, that that's is, uh, that's Highlander Endgame. Ah, that's the one I am that's thinking Highlander of, 4, yes. Uh, where they try and merge the film series with the TV series. Oh, yeah, that's the one. There are connections to the TV series in Highlander 3, so I've read, but it's Highlander 4 where it yeah, kind of Yeah, and it's Highlander coalesces. 3 that... Um, ignores Highlander 2. Yes, completely. In fact, it's a series from this point pretty much completely ignores, ignores Highlander it. 2. Which I, w- I was going to say is a shame, but it's so uh, all over the place anyway that I'm not sure I really care that much. No, that's the thing. But, I, uh... I, I genuinely don't. It, Highlander 1 was... It was a good film, but it's not yeah. exactly something I'm going to be writing home for everybody to see. Mm. But um, Highlander 3 is a poorer remake of that film with Mario Van Peebles in the Kurgan role. Oh, the classic Mario <laughs> Van Peebles. And they try and switch it up a little bit by having some more oriental themes. Like there is sort of a Ramirez character that gets killed off in a similar way, but he's an actual oriental character. So they try and switch it up a little bit. So but it is essentially the, the whole like samurai element. Yeah, like- but it is essentially a remake of the first film and that's what i like about highlander 2 is that they definitely tried to take it off in a different direction and they kind of failed in the execution but the idea is that the central story of highlander is a guy that lives forever and what does this feel like and it's the idea that you can take it anywhere you can go to any time period any other ideas can come into play in this central idea and they try to do that but unfortunately they really fail in the execution of it definitely and i've got all the time in the world for a film that takes a sudden left turn and to go through a couple of films that have done that and worked you have uh, mad max 2 the road warrior Mm. which is a sudden departure both in genre and tone when compared to mad max which is for the most part this very small almost drama-like film that doesn't have much action actually in it well that was such a sudden one that when it was released in America as The Road Warrior, not many people knew that there was a first a, film. A they Max, just took yeah. it as a film on its own, which is a good thing to do. It is a great and thing to do. And it succeeded because of that. And that's what I think Russell Mulcahy's tried to do with Highlander 2. In fact, I think that The Road Warrior is probably his biggest inspiration in trying to be as outlandish as he can. Unfortunately, he's not George Miller, so it doesn't yeah. quite come together. But I do appreciate some of the elements that he's playing with. And unlike many fans, I actually appreciate some of the elements to do with this whole Zeiss culture. And I would like to see that explored. Although for me, I think you could have done it the other way around. I felt that you could have actually dispensed with all of the Immortals' backstory yeah. completely. And I would have gone more almost down the shield idea and have him battle with these people. And you could have had maybe some more twists regarding the Immortals, more integrated with the Shield Corporation. Perhaps the person behind the Shield Corporation is secretly an immortal or something like yeah, that. It- but again, not both. But I feel like the Zeiss stuff, for me, if you're trying to deal with it as a self-contained story in of itself that can be watched without watching Highlander 2, Alan, yeah. the Road Warrior, yeah. you should have gone in the Shield direction and not and dispensed with all the Zeist backstory stuff. Okay. Maybe, but, I don't know. It's like, yeah. Again, it's one of those things where you do one thing or the other, not both. Definitely. The thing with the S.H.I.E.L.D. Corporation stuff for me that keeps getting in the way of it is that it doesn't actually say anything about McCloud as a character. No. It doesn't relate to him in any meaningful way. The S.H.I.E.L.D., it, this is something he's created, but it never feels like his. No. I never feel like he's a part of that world, actually. Yeah, he always, always feels, feels like an outsider an to outsider, the corporation. Yeah. I don't understand why that is so, because uh, when you go to the flashback, it looks like he's the supervisor of this whole operation and he's working in conjunction with this Dr. Neymar and they're a partnership. And I don't understand how this partnership 
disintegrated and how he's not involved in the shield corporation more and how this other guy the david blake character who's played yeah. by dr cox <laughs> which is john c mcginley yeah um <laughs> i didn't know who dr I'm, cox is you just sort of, yeah. you just acknowledge that as fact because john c mcginley it is, is dr cox. dr cox yeah uh, but um, I've, got, I've got plenty to talk about him later, <laughs> yeah. honestly. But um, I don't understand how this other character became head of the S.H.I.E.L.D. Corporation when you had these other two guys in play. I, I don't understand. The established situation doesn't make sense no, in not, of itself. N- not whatsoever. So, And again, it doesn't say anything about what's happened to the world. So we're... I guess that's it. The problem isn't the ideas that the film's no. playing with. It's purely in the execution yeah, of these it's the ideas. Execution of that. Yeah, because um, you can't argue that there aren't some good ideas at play here. It's just how they deal with these ideas. Definitely. Um, this is a good time for us to uh, actually branch over into the characters. Which characters did we like and didn't like? Yeah. Him? Talking about John C. McGinley, I've actually got a little trivia tidbit on him. But he actually modelled his performance in this film on Orson Welles. Yeah. So he lowered his the tone of his voice to sound more <laughs> like Orson Welles. He very much regrets this decision. <laughs> Although I'd say that he's definitely one of the more enjoyable parts of the film for me. I, I do like all the scenes that he's in. Yeah, I like John C. McGinley. He plays big characters well. Yeah. And this is another one of those films where it's not come together in the way that he wanted. But it does look like he's trying to do something. Yeah, he's definitely trying to cheer up some of that scenery. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And um, there are some great little scenes between him and Michael Ironside. The only problem is uh, they're so detached from the rest of the main action. Yeah. Especially during the last third of the film that the film becomes so disjointed that... um, all logic of logic yeah. and geography just go completely out the window. Yeah. But yeah, I like John C. McGinley's character, even though his reasons for being there aren't clear and uh, his motivations are rather weak. But uh, him as a character and um, the fact that John C. McGinley genuinely has quite a lot of fun in the role is uh, is quite appealing to yeah. watch. Um, who else do we like? Well, you've got Virginia Madsen in this one, who um, can't seem to escape these trouble productions. No. from Dune to no. Highlander 2. And um, she her is- character's a bit of a contradiction, really, because she starts the film very proactively. She's a very proactive character when she's infiltrating yeah. the S.H.I.E.L.D. Corporation. and um, She's and actually she- the head of this little yeah. rebellion, which... I get why Connor McLeod would be interested in that character because she is the head of her own little uh, group of rebels that are trying to infiltrate this shady organization. Mm. And it's very much like something McLeod was doing on Zeiss. Yeah. So I get why he's connected to her in that way. But But it it never really goes into (laughs) that. Well, that's the thing. She's really proactive in their first 10 minutes. And then as soon as she uh, makes contact with Connor and they uh, kiss and become romantically involved, she spends the next 45 minutes holed up in his apartment. That's it. And she does nothing. Everything to do with the way that the character is established is just thrown out of the window. And it's not until the last 15 minutes that she sort of gets involved with everything again. Yeah. And even then, she's still very much a bystander. But she gets involved in the action a bit more. Even more than when they reshot some stuff. But um, yeah, she literally is very proactive and very strong at the start. And then just becomes a regular female character of this age. Yeah. Of this era. Uh, it's really disappointing end. it is disappointing it's very yeah. disappointing because like you say she starts off so strong and it starts off so well and you, it kind of like perked me up when i first watched it yeah and it just I was like oh here we go yeah and uh, suddenly she just turns into just a stock female character when the men take over. yeah exactly when the <laughs> when the guys take over oh it's just uh, it's not very good at all no it's not it's even more insulting when you get the um scene later on when 
when Connor and Ramirez infiltrate Max by driving through and getting shot up at and then she comes out the boot almost like she's in the boot because she's not quite as good as these other two characters. Yeah, so it is very disappointing, that character. Definitely. And also in talking about this character of Louise, we get probably one of the weirdest scenes in the whole film. There are many weird scenes, but this is one of the weirdest ones where following Connor's regeneration into a younger man, he gets involved with Louise during the sequence. They uh, kiss immediately for no they reason. They don't just kiss. Yeah, and well, they have a cheeky fuck in an alleyway. <laughs> That's what happens. It's well, quite uncomfortable. Depending on which version of the film you see, because in the American version, it's just a kiss. Oh, they don't right. have any other bits in it. But yeah, in the final version of the film, they have a cheeky fuck. And um, we attempted to explain this <laughs> uh, in some way. We think that because Connor has been old and uh, presumably impotent for such a long period of time yeah. now that he's mortal, and this will be you know, the first time he's been an immortal man for many, many hundreds of years and discovering the fact that he's probably lost his ability to be um, sexually active, we reckon that as soon as he becomes immortal and young again, that he decides that he wants to fuck the first thing that he sees. I guess this is playing back into the idea that he is a serial rapist. Yes. <laughs> As advertised in Highlander 1. Oh. Uh. But um, it's such a weird thing to happen at this point in the film, and I can only really attribute it as uh, just bad writing, really. It's just... Um, <laughs> I don't know whether there's some scene missing here, but it's just... I almost feel it's one of those things where they just... It's too soon. Oh, it's, it's very much so. It, it seems like they're trying to just undercut a lot of development that would have to take place. It's almost like, oh, you know what? We'd have to go through all this character development where they fall in love and stuff like this yeah. and actually kiss. And then there's a tender scene where they fuck. And if I, you know what? Fuck all that. He shags it in the alleyway and then they're together from then onwards. And, uh, <laughs> Which alleyway are you referring to? Both. But um, yeah, the front alley, uh, the, the back alley, or the back. But, uh, but um, it makes no sense because, like we we're saying before, she spends the next forty odd minutes of the film doing nothing. No, her character goes nowhere, and um, and everything that he would like her character for is just completely lost. Yeah, from the moment so they actually fall in love, there really is no reason for doing it at that point. Not whatsoever. It would have been so much better to have that way way later. Yeah, there should have been some kind of like almost Han Solo, Princess Leia, Empire Strikes Back thing going on between yeah. them. Like a nice back and forth. You kind of needed some, some Yeah, exactly. Banter. Once that happens, once they kiss and do the dirty, she's a non-character. Yeah, because when you she's, think of- She's fulfilled her purpose in the writer's eyes. They've got nothing else for that character whatsoever, really. Yeah. And that shows. Because when you think about it as a character, she should have a rocky relationship with this character. Definitely. He's, he's the guy that's created the shield that she's been campaigning about for so long and trying to disrupt so there should be some more conflict here that gets resolved slowly over the course of the film but it's just dissipates into thin air so weird as most things do in this so film. weird and uh, talking of things dissipating in thin air <laughs> we have sean connery as ramirez who, who appears in a puff of smoke yeah who appears from thin air <laughs> i'm rather glad the magic works <laughs> So, why is Ramirez in this film? Because, like we've spoke about earlier, he dies in Highlander. Because foreign distributors wanted it. (laughs) (laughs) There's no other explanation. The the explanation that they provide in the film is in a one-off piece of dialogue where he says, If you need me, you need only call. So, in this moment where McLeod is in need of help... He calls out for Ramirez. Yeah. And then Ramirez takes form in yeah. Scotland during a play, which I don't get because McLeod needs help during an action sequence. So he shouts out for Ramirez to come and guide him 
and then Ramirez actually forms in Scotland. Yeah, I think... He doesn't actually provide any help. No, I think the basic idea is that he's meant to appear in the place that he died last time. But ah. that still doesn't make any sense because seemingly where this theatre production is, is in some city somewhere. Whereas when he died, he died on the highlands of Scotland, which if anyone's ever been to Scotland, is nowhere near where any of the cities are. Yeah. So well, even that bit doesn't really make much sense. But I think that the idea of it is that, that he's meant to have been resurrected where he died, roughly. Okay. Give or take 50 miles. Yeah, well, it does look like it is an open theatre yeah, but in, then in when the he country. Can't be able, yeah, but then yeah, it's open theater in the country. But then when he leaves the theater, he's, he's in the middle of the street. city. Yeah, uh, it doesn't marry up at all. No, no. But whatsoever. I think that's the general idea. But it, again, it fails in execution. Yeah, and we <laughs> and do, there's no real reason for yeah, it. Yeah, none at all. And we do get an excellent dressing scene with yeah. Sean Connery, where he goes to a tailor's to buy a new suit. And we get this three-minute-long sequence in yeah. which they fit a new suit on him. For the only reason I can think of is because Sean Connery wanted a new suit. I'm sure this would have been written into Sean Connery's contract that he got to keep his wardrobe. Definitely, yeah, because we get this this three-minute-long <laughs> sequence following this reappearance sequence in in this. And uh, um, this is actually putting one of my favourite scenes though, where he appears in a scene of Hamlet. He's trying to converse with this guy. He's trying to desperately say his lines. It's very cheesy, but I do like watch your game, shithead. And yeah, he goes, I, I, I shithead? <laughs> what is shithead? I love that line. Because it's so fucking outlandish that this kind of thespian actor is actually some... Cockney guy. Yeah, Cockney. <laughs> Again, it doesn't marry up, but no, it makes me not laugh. At all. But yeah, we're going to talk about this uh, Taylor scene. Oh yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. It belongs to a different film entirely, but I'm sure... I don't that think they... it belongs to any film. I think this is just <laughs> making of footage that they've spliced into the film and making the suit for him. This is a camera in the wardrobe department. <laughs> for most of the footage that we see Sean Connery in in this sequence, he's literally just sitting down smoking a cigar and reading a paper. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure this is just all studio outtakes. I wonder if that's just how they could have got an extra day on his schedule. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's I like, want to oh, sit down. I want to have all these cigars. Uh, I want to have some whiskey. And uh, yeah, this is one of my days. <laughs> <laughs> and his next day as well is simply sitting on an airplane yeah well i think the other thing as well they had sean connery for six days but i'd imagine sean connery was probably there for about three weeks the other days were him spent playing golf <laughs> that seems oh, to be the, all he does isn't it really yeah. is play golf <laughs> but um yeah that and then yeah the next day he's on a plane that's that's his the second day of shooting. Yeah. Um, he does finally meet up with Connor McLeod, but yeah. he doesn't actually do anything in the story. No. Really, he gives Connor McLeod someone to bounce off yeah. and recall old times. He's his old friend Ramirez. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he's there as uh, almost as like reassurance, really, to be honest. But he largely takes the place that Virginia Madsen's character Louise should have actually taken up. Really. Oh yeah. Her character just gets completely sidelined, especially once Ramirez gets into the picture, because you're basically dealing with this little old human, and you've got two Supermen coming to the uh, fray, so she's no longer needed as much. No. But um, on this plane sequence, you do get one of my favourite lines in this whole film, which is when um, the airline hostess asks him whether he wants any food, and he says um, he never eats anything he can't identify. (laughs) 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 Which I think is a very nice line, uh, especially on plane food of this era. Yeah, definitely. uh, Which was really shit. Um, Going back to when we were talking about um, Predator 2, 
we get another uh, slight Paul Verhoeven-esque little scene here when we get the um, airline video. Yeah, and it's showing the safety mm. instructions, but it's very much tongue-in-cheek. It's... Uh, mm. But it's saying that a crash is very likely and it's just showing everybody in chaos trying to fit on their masks and everything while the plane that they're in is plummeting to the earth. Yeah. It's quite a funny little sequence. But it totally doesn't fit with the rest of the film. Not whatsoever. (laughs) But um, when Ramirez enters the main action, yeah, he's literally just there for reassurance and apart from his exit from the film, he performs no other narrative function. No. In fact, even his exit out of the film is so utterly unremarkable. It's manufactured, yeah. Exactly, it's manufactured. It's only there because the writers put it there. It doesn't feel yeah. like functional in the scripts whatsoever uh, or the and, story. And they put it in there in such a way that if Sean Connery didn't do the film, they could have left all that out and it would have been fine. In case he didn't turn up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it feels like. It feels like you can just take out his character wholesale and it affects nothing. But this is why I have a funny relationship with this film. I still like him in there. The film, for me, perks up when he's there. And it doesn't matter that everything he's doing is just god-awful. It's because it's Sean Connery. <laughs> but, um, yeah, unfortunately, his character has no narrative involvement at all. I mean with uh, the sequence where they infiltrate the prison and then get shot up that could have just been connor that did it there's no reason for ramirez being there and again even in the sequences when they're in the prison they split up so it's ramirez on his own and louise and connor on their own and they're the ones that find alan and you get the alan death sequence but the reason they split them up is because they can have one shot of Sean Connery running down a corridor and then the sequence involving Alan and everyone else, which would have taken longer to shoot, they could have shot that in a completely different day when Sean yeah. Connery wasn't there. <laughs> that's the only reason it is there. And also, again... Did we ever find out what Sean Connery's actually doing? What Ramirez is actually doing when he runs off down no, a corridor? No, he just runs off down a corridor and they regroup. Oh, right. Fair and enough. Then, <laughs> the next time we see him, he's in that uh, fan room, which is where he, oh, his of course. part comes to an end. And then he, he dies to Amazing Grace being played on the bagpipes which i can't help but think of um, spock's death and wrath of khan yeah his funeral every <laughs> time i hear music. it it's, it's the exact same I think piece it's of literally music the same yeah, music <laughs> it really is it's got to be <laughs> um yeah and again this is an entirely manufactured death because there was no reason for them to go into that room in fact they go into the room because he's there yeah and uh and he goes don't let the door shut and it shuts it's just a weird way to finish that character. It's kind of sad that that's the last we ever see of Ramirez in Highlander because the way he died in Highlander seems to be befitting to Sean Yeah, it's Connery. a much more heroic death. Yeah, exactly. And, and Ramirez as a character. In Highlander 2, it, it kind of undoes a lot of that, unfortunately, yeah. by including Sean Connery. Yeah. But going back to the way the film was made, I would say a large part of the um, finances involved banked on him being in the film so i think we're in this situation where the film may have not been made if he had not been in the film having said that they should have just thought of a better way of having him in the film really (laughs) it all comes back to that it really does but what else did we like um (laughs) well i'm always comparing it back to highlander which i imagine that many of the viewers are actually doing as well but one reason why highlander works for me is because of the imaginative camera work and editing. Mm. There's these very creative transitions between scenes and sequences that are incredibly engaging and throw you into various different eras mm. head first. 
I feel like all of that is lacking in yeah. Highlander 2. There's yeah. there's no it's not filmed in a way that's particularly interesting or engaging. No. It relies on a couple of the same hallmarks. You get the very similar close-ups of Christopher Lambert being lit up from above as wind brushes through him and you know all these kind of hallmarks yeah, that the you, fans want to you, see. You do get that. Um and you do get one remnant of the flashback sieges in the first flashback sequence when Alan and Connor are reminiscing about when they created the shield and Connor holds up some um, goggles to his face, yeah. which are like the sun visor goggles to his face. And then we literally cut around and then we go to the past where he's wearing these goggles. That's quite a nice transition, but that's literally the only one that I can think of that really works. And also going back to the inventive camera work of the first film, we yeah. do get all the music video style crane work that happens when they have the last battle with the sword fight, where it's oh, definitely. tracking along yeah. the, tracking quite fast along the floor. Yeah, along the warehouse floor. Yeah, and that's very visually exciting. You get a very small part of that in some of the battle sequences and in the opera sequence at the start, but that's where it ends. There's nothing to compare it to in the second film compared to the first film. Yeah, it feels like Russell Mulcahy's hands have been tied behind his back when mm. making this film. Because he looks so promising a director looking at Highlander in terms of mm. how he visually tells a story. And Highlander 2 just seems completely lacking of that. And the only reason I have to explain for it is because of the way this film was made and the troubles that he encountered. Yeah. That he perhaps didn't have the time to really get into scenes in the way that he wanted to. Yeah, I'm thinking going back to some of those safety problems that they were having as well. Yes. Because you do get some of the same things coming back from the first film, especially in terms of the explosions and things like that. Some of those are very reminiscent of the original film. In yes, terms of the there's, there's one particular explosion that is just phenomenal in Highlander Yeah, too. the first quickening scene, which yes. is huge. And I do like a lot of the lighting in the film. I do think it shows off the sets well and things. But I think in terms of the actual moving it's camera work... It's the movement work, of the camera. In terms of the moving camera work, it's um, it's not the best. It's not very exciting. There are a couple of things. There's one sequence that I do like when they're infiltrating the shield, which is definitely one of the better sequences, when they go down the levels of the shield control. Oh, yeah. That's nice. Yeah, I really like uh, that scene. But again, it's, there's not enough of that in this particular film. But I will say that there's one particular set that looks fantastic. It's the set that they explode during the first major action sequence. It's a great-looking set, and that's one of the only ones I think is captured to its full potential. Yeah, they got a lot of mileage out of it. I mean, it's probably in about 20 minutes of the whole film. It's got a working train that comes through it from yeah. one tunnel to another tunnel. This is a set that they constructed on a dockside. They needed a train for this particular sequence because it's quite intrinsic to the, the main action sequence. Although I could argue that you could actually just alter the scene to yeah. to make it fit. And this is another thing where I think they made some bad decisions on the financial side of it. Uh, they had a railway track where they could have just redressed some of the buildings. Yeah. There was another location which just had the railroad tracks and the production designer had built this set and they were so taken in by the expanse of this set that they decided that they wanted to build it from scratch. So everything that you see on this set, apart from the railway lines is completely constructed from scratch. Yeah. And this is in the days before digital extensions or even any... There's no, not even any matte shots in this sequence. No, no, it, it's, it's all, all real. in camera. And this set, which they use different aspects of, probably about 20, 25 minutes of the whole film, Yeah, pretty much the first third of the film is set yeah. around the street. This set is nearly a mile long. 
I don't want to say it's almost like too big for what they needed it for, really, but it is a beautiful set, and yeah. they do use it to its full potential. The film looks its best when in that set, mm. in my opinion. It's, it's a great-looking set. Whether or not it needed to be that big no. uh, is, a, is another <laughs> thing entirely, but it, the film does actually look its best when rooted in that set. Yeah, I think it was just the filmmakers going, this will be way cheaper to build in Argentina. We'll make it massive. Yeah. And I think it's just that kind of thing where, like, maybe lesser would have been more <laughs> Yeah, in that sense, but... um. You know, I'm glad it's there for that. We're, we're in that part of the film. And another thing that I wanted to draw a comparison with Highlander for is the music. Yes. I mean, Highlander 1, you've got Queen contributing a lot of music from uh, which album is it? All the soundtrack music that they made for Highlander got put into a kind of magic. A kind of magic, yeah. There is no proper soundtrack album for Highlander. No, but the um, actual score was by Michael Kamen. The yes. fantastic Michael Kamen yes. is very obviously him. Mm. And it kind of weaves around Queen's music quite well. He yes, kind of, it does. Uh, weaves yeah. it into the film really well. Yeah, I think also because Queen's music matches the bombast of what they're trying to do yeah. with the film. It's uh, very much a marriage made in heaven, really. Yeah. I did have the opportunity to uh, see him in action once in a live setting, which was, um, although I didn't realize at the time, was literally about a year before he died, and uh, I managed to get a ticket to go and see Party of the Palace, which was the Queen's Golden Jubilee, and he was the musical director on that concert, and uh, it was just great to see him in action, and uh, yeah, it was only... Uh, unfortunate that he died literally a year after doing that which uh, was really quite sad and it was after completing what is probably some of his best work with the Band of Brothers series oh yeah everybody felt like Jesus Christ Michael Kamen is back in a big yeah. way yeah. and then unfortunately he died the following year I think yeah. it was and I got that soundtrack for Christmas mm. I always remember being so sad like it's oh this is so fantastic but yeah. this is the last we're gonna hear of him but um, you've got that music <laughs> which yeah. gets recycled quite a lot in this uh, in this film. Yeah, it does, but they keep trying to be Queen mm. without actually having Queen. Mm. And it just sounds like a real pale imitation. Yeah, because instead of Queen, you've got Lou Graham. Yes. Who's the lead singer from Foreigner. Yeah. And I think that's the only memorable song in the whole film, which is the One Dream. You know, the uh, One Dream. Yeah. yeah. me hanging on. No, that um, is, yeah. That's yeah. literally the only. Whereas in Highlander 1, you've got many themed tunes yeah um, every 10 minutes brings a, a new song and again so many that they actually reuse at least two of them in the second film like yeah they reuse kind of magic well they have in the to, bar yeah. scene and um you get the orchestral version of who wants to live forever in about at least two sequences and then the music that's in between is by Stuart copeland and it's all a little bit director dvd almost yeah for me. it's, it's not just his, um, not memorable whatsoever not his best score no because um he has done much better scores i can think of the score for uh, rumblefish that he did which oh, is very yeah. inventive very good yeah. but this is very much him trying to copy michael Kamen and only ever coming off as second best i mean that's the thing once you start to work in a shadow of such greats is you're never going to come off better yeah i'm not sure whether you can really judge Stuart copeland effectively because there's been so many different versions of the film that have been made and edited. I don't know whether some of the bits that have been scored were actually what Stuart Copeland was actually seeing when he was actually writing that music. Because literally, this is a score that will have been chopped and changed and moved around so many times that I can say that there are some sequences where the music doesn't really match what's going on in the picture. Yeah. But I can't blame Stuart Copeland no, for that. No, you because can't. You can't. Whatsoever. I don't know whether that was a cue for that particular scene. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. You don't know what he was seeing. You no. don't know which version of the film he was scoring it to and whether or not it was a completely different one than what was released. 
released. Yeah. And maybe he scored music for certain parts of the film that have just been replaced by other pieces of music entirely. Mm, And that's a nice little segue into what versions there are of this film (laughs) and which ones work and which ones don't work. Right. So going back to the production of this film, due to all the problems that they were having and the overspends that they were having, the completion bond company that were ensuring that the film would be finished were getting cold feet. And it got to the point where the film got shut down about three weeks before the end. Yeah. And uh, certain sequences hadn't been shot. And uh, the film itself wholesale got taken off the director and the producers and was completely in the hands of the completion bomb company, which I think was Film Finances. Every single aspect of the film from this point onwards, in terms of its US release anyway, was taken control of by the Film Finances company. And this also included in firing the original editor. It went through three editors, one of them uncredited as well. And um, I'm not 100% sure whether the bonding company cut is the US cut, but I think it's very, very similar. And this is the first cut of Highlander, really. So this is the 89-minute version of Highlander. It's the shortest version of the film. Mm. Yeah, it's the version that has Zeiss in it. It actually uh, combines a couple of the action scenes in in the end scene, in which... um, both the warehouse scene and the final fight are combined together yeah. to create one big super <laughs> fight. <laughs> yeah. This is probably one of the positive things I've got to say about it. It has some problems with continuity, but there's two fight sequences involving Katana and Connor, and they, instead of having them as two separate sequences, they splice them together. Yeah. And um, it's actually slightly better for it, because when I actually went back to watch the other version of the film, they're completely separate, but the first fight sequence is there for no reason at all. No. And I like the whole sequence involved in the lift going down. The thing, that's great. It's a great stunt. Mm-hmm. But it does actually work a little bit better at the end of the film. There is a lot of continuity problems where all these things take place, but if they'd actually shot them as a continuous piece, it probably would have worked better, because both those fights are far too short but the other thing, the other two main things that the that the American cut doesn't do, it doesn't give you any motivation as to why Connor's building the shield because they completely cut out Brenda dying. She's yeah. not in the version of the film at all. And the other one that it does is in the way that it edits the film together, it makes you think that Max, which is a maximum security prison, yeah. and shield control are the all same the same place. place. Yeah. The other thing it does, you never get to see above the shield you never get to see what the sky looks like. Yeah, it's only said in an opening crawl mm. that some people believe. Nope, there's no there's no opening crawl. Oh, is there no the, opening crawl? There's a voiceover the- by Christopher Lambert. Oh, and right. And what they do is they reverse the footage of the opera scene and him driving away from the opera scene. So in the American cut, he drives to the opera <laughs> and then goes to the opera. It's all over the shop. And... The only instance that you get of the ozone layer being repaired is the sequence when Alan types it on his computer. Yeah. The only thing you see in the American cut is him typing that the ozone layer is recovered, and that's it. So even in terms of Dr. Alan's scenes, you never get the sense that he has even really aware of how this ozone layer has been repaired. No. And there's no reference to this weak point in the shield, and they never get above it. And the last thing is, in terms of the Zeist version of the film... When they exile the characters, they're given a choice of when they win the prize to be mortal and remain on Earth or return to Zeist. And he promises that he will return to Zeist in the initial version of the film. But when he gets to the end, we get a nice little voiceover from Sean Connery about some gubbins. But we, most importantly, don't get to see the shield being destroyed. No. We get to see the shield machine being destroyed, but we don't get to see the effects of it. We don't get any shots of 
any uh, night sky or anything like that. And also, he decides to remain on Earth with Louise, but we never really get to find out because the movie literally freeze frames and cuts to the credits. So the film doesn't even have a proper ending. No. It's so weird. It's so incomplete. And yeah. that's plain to see in regards to the special effects. Because the shield in the theatrical version of the film is this bright red monstrosity that covers half the frame most of the time. But you can tell by the practical sets that are there and how they've been lit and um, how they've been captured and what colour palette the cinematographer was working with that it was actually intended to be blue yes and yet the Bond and company have just added this very garish red shield over the top of it and it's plain to see that that wasn't what it was meant to be well the VFX designer uh, who's called Sam Nicholson he was explaining about this in the making of documentary that certain scenes effect sequences had been completed before they got shut down and then there's other effect sequences that weren't and that's why the quality of the visual effects in the original version of the film varies so much, where you get some quite good match shots, and yeah. then you get some really bad match shots. And all the bad ones are done by the bonding company, where they really didn't give a damn about the quality of the film mm-hmm. at this point. They just wanted a film finished on time, on on budget. And um, the thing with The Shield is, it was never intended to be read, but because it was taken over by the bonding company, they didn't understand how the film had been planned and made. And uh, apparently, with the shield effects, they'd shot over 50,000 feet of film for possible shield effects. And in the finished cut of the original American and UK versions of the film, the footage that everyone agreed on amounted to seven feet of used film. <laughs> so... <laughs> In terms of the effects, the director's cut version does go a long way to restoring the original vision, what they intended for, anyway. Well, this was intended to be the most complete version of Highlander 2, mm. the director's cut, that is. So they did go back and revisit those special effects with more modern technologies, but also they reshot some of the film as well. And this was intended to fill a couple of gaps that were left by the theatrical cut of the film. But actually, I found some of the stuff that they refilmed to be utterly unnecessary. Oh, yeah. The main thing that they reshot was the canyon chase. Which is weird. There's a canyon next to this Bioshock-like city. The geography of this film is completely all over the place. We don't really find out where we are for a start in in terms of the city. I mean, in the original Highlander, we're definitely in New York. Mm -hmm. But in Highlander 2, it can be anywhere yeah really it's just a uh, generic neo-noir city definitely but um in terms of all this it seems to be right next to some sort of big dam and then it's right next to some sort of desert and then it's right next to some canyons <laughs> and it all seems very close to each other yeah it must be new zealand yeah <laughs> it's yeah. got to be that's the only place that i can think that has such a varied landscape yeah that it has this this has to be New Zealand. But yeah, the landscape just doesn't make any sense. And um, this is yet another thing where the second film doesn't really marry up with the first film. No. Because in the first film, everything's very much real world and these over-the-top characters existing in our world. Yeah. Whereas this is completely removed from anything that we know. Utterly, yeah. But yeah, we get this mountain sequence which they reshot because they thought it was so necessary for the completed version of the film. But this is another sequence that you can completely take out. Going back to the geography, Katana appears for no reason because suddenly he's, one minute he's in shield control, which is meant to be somewhere completely different. And then he's um, when they're breaking out of the maximum security prison, he's there and they run him over. Yeah. Then they have this battle and then... As soon as the sequence is over, he's back at shield control. Yeah, it it makes no sense. It didn't need to be there anyway. It wasn't exactly like the film was lacking that particular sequence. No. It's a shame that almost resources were wasted on this little added scene that adds nothing. But um, the other thing that did happen when they had this bonding cut 
there was a separate distributor for the UK, or I think probably some European markets as well, and they were able to make a uh, slightly more complete version of the film. This is the UK version, which is almost like a hybrid between the Renegade director's yeah. cut version of the film and the US cut. The thing that the the initial quickening versions of the film do, obviously they have Zeist in it, but the other thing that they do is have all the flashback sequences at the start of the film, before the opera sequence. So we get to find out all the backstory regarding the shield and why it's been built in the cold open. Now, I think there's a lot of debate as to whether this is the best way to go or not. Because in the later versions of the film, these flashbacks are put back in their original place, as in the script. And they are definitely flashbacks where Alan and Connor are reminiscing. And then yeah. also in the graveyard scene where Connor is reminiscing about his wife. What do you think about these sequences where they are and where they are in the original version? I definitely prefer them where they are written, to be honest. It feels more organic for them to actually come out in the way that they do yeah. in the director's cut yeah. than to have it be the cold open of the film. Yeah, because it was originally designed when they were editing to move them to the front to make it clearer to the audience the situation, which I can see that as a firm argument. But at the same time, I do like the fact that it makes you question how this came to be and the stories unraveled yeah, a little bit more organically and uh, more gradually as you go on. Well, again, they're trying to recapture something that they did with Highlander, which yeah. was they throw you into the deep end within the first 10 minutes of the film. Uh, Connor McLeod walks through a parking lot and all of a sudden he is attacked by a sword-wielding gent. Yeah. And um, they have this sword battle and Connor McLeod eventually cuts off his head. There's some lightning effects that happen. And then he runs away. And suddenly you're like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. And then it goes in to slowly explain that. And I like that they try and replicate this with Highlander in that they establish this world, this mm. kind of world that's far removed from what we know Highlander's based. Yeah. It wants you to ask the question, what the fuck's going on in this yeah. world? And then it slowly answers the question. I don't think it's quite as satisfying yeah. at all. The answers that it gives aren't exactly great. But I kind of get what they're trying to do. Yeah. So, yeah, there's the initial quickening versions of the film, which are the US and UK cuts. Yeah. They both feature the concept of Zeist as originally intended. Yeah. And this is to kind of contradict what the filmmakers were later saying about the final version of the film being as originally intended. Because the reaction to the inclusion of Zeist in the quickening version was so derided by fans that uh, when the opportunity came to re-edit the film which is about four or five years later, when the Renegade version was made, they chose to completely excise all references to Zeist and instead re-edited the film to make it look like what we were seeing as Zeist was just a very long time ago in the past and that all these characters, instead of travelling across space from Zeist to Earth in real time, were continually being thrust into the future and back again. Yeah, which actually poses more questions than it answers. Yeah, it causes more problems than it solves. Yeah. And this is probably one of the very first instances of a production team making a creative decision based on fan reactions. Yes. Although it may have made some fans happier that it wasn't there and it may be slightly more in line with the original film, it kind of doesn't do that job either because in losing the Zeist subplot, a lot of character motivations and even just basic geography and logic is lost 
because why would a punishment for the main two characters being exiled, why would they be thrust into the future? In many ways, that would be better than being in the past. Yeah, and it raises a great many questions about Katana's motivations. Yeah. <laughs> it also casts these um, immortals as being time travellers. And that in itself makes you wonder further about why these people are doing what they're doing because they can time travel. They can now change the past and the present and the future. And yet Katana seems so very concerned about what Connor McLeod is doing at a very specific time mm. in the far distant future. Yeah. That it, it makes me wonder, why the fuck do you care if you are separated by thousands and thousands, possibly millions of years? Because in the original version of the film, the timelines from Earth and Zeist run in parallel mm -hmm. but because the zeist year is much longer than an earth year it kind of all marries up so even though a lot of time has passed on earth not a lot of time has passed on zeist yeah therefore it wouldn't have been that long after connor and ramirez will have been exiled that katana is still thinking about these characters yeah and the other main point of the exile in the original film is that once the character wins the prize he has the option to remain mortal and stay on earth or return to zeist and this is what Katana is worried about, him returning to Zeist. Now, this is still carried forward in the Renegade version of the film, but it has much less logic because this is all taking place in the future rather than yeah. it both taking place at exactly the same time. So the threat of Connor returning is much less than in the original version of the film. Yeah, definitely. I mean... Uh the thing is about this cut of the film that I really don't like is that it panders to fans in that way. And by doing so, it raises problems. But I prefer it when a film, especially a franchise film, challenges fans. It meets fans on a level as saying, listen, we know you want more and bigger, but we're going to give you something different. And I like it when filmmakers try that, even if they fail. And Highlander 2, they certainly fail. And I think even in its best form, it still would have missed the mark. Yeah. But I prefer the ambitions and the intentions behind the original version of the film and the original script for the film than this version that panders to fans. Yeah. But I don't think the theatrical version of Highlander 2 is better than the Renegade or the director's no. cut. The director's cut is definitely the most complete of yeah. the films. I just don't like that particular element yeah. that they changed. I said they all have their own problems, but... Again, the Renegade version fixes a lot of things, but in taking this whole Zeiss plot out of the equation, more gaping holes emerged. Yes. So what's the difference between the director's cut and the Renegade cut of the film? Not a lot. The main things that are different in the director's cut are down to the visuals in terms of the effects. It definitely looks the better of all the versions that are out there. Yeah. You can tell that the most work has gone into restoring that version of the film. Yeah, but again, there's probably a version of the film where you can take bits from all of these versions and it probably would be the most complete and also as originally intended yeah. version of the film and it probably would be the strongest version of the film because this is not a film that's ever going to be looked at as being a solid film it's no. always going to have problems because of just the initial writing and the problems that they had mm -hmm. in trying to concoct a new story for it and also the fact that the original Highlander is good but I wouldn't say it's a great film it wasn't as sure-footed as people remember it no no but um, there's still many things in the Renegade slash Director's Cut version that make no sense whatsoever. The most glaring one is the Katana-Connor McLeod fight in the warehouse. That just comes out of nowhere. 
I don't even know what that location is. Because no. when um, Katana first arrives on Earth, and we have the whole subway sequence, and then he gets in the taxi, I have no idea why he's driving to that place and waiting for Connor there, you know, the no. place with the dome and the eagle. I don't get how that action scene comes to take place. I mean, why is Connor drawn there as well? No, I don't. I know. It just seems like he arrives and they are immediately drawn to each other for reasons unexplained. Yeah, and I guess they're drawing um, on the fact that these immortals are drawn to each other by mm. some mystical force. But, but there's not enough there it, to really. Yeah, it's just it's never it. actually stated in this version of the film, or even hinted at that that's actually what's happening here. They just decide, oh fuck, we're gonna go to this warehouse, yeah, and meet and fight. Yeah. Connor doesn't even know who this guy is, really, does he? Or does it? Does he realize? Well, he does he's, know he's remembered General, now. He's he does re- know it's General Katana, but and that's yeah, that's another thing that's wishy washy. Now, how much does he remember? Yeah, none of these were problems in the original version of the film. These no. are all problems that have been introduced with this sequel. Yeah, and it's given me a headache already just thinking about it. <laughs> But, yeah, and then they just get drawn to this warehouse and there's this whole other sequence involving the lift, which is cool. But, again, there's no logic to it. And then Katana goes to S.H.I.E.L.D., takes over that part of it, and um, kind of goes back home. That whole part of the film is very disjointed. And there's other disjointed parts later, mainly involving Katana and where he actually is. So we keep getting bits where Katana's one place and then he's suddenly another place. And the whole last third of the film feels really disjointed for that because you're never quite sure where katana actually is gonna be yeah and why he's there i don't know if that's an actual problem with the making of the film though or a problem with the script because for example the warehouse scene it does seem like that's the place where it's supposed to be that's where connor leaves his apartment to go and fight with katana and then he returns back to his apartment i can't see how the production problems were getting the way of the setup i can see how it get in the way of how they could shoot the action but how those scenes are constructed and how they lead into each other. They should be far better defined than the way that they are. Like, even when he returns from the warehouse, he doesn't really let on to the fact that he's just met with somebody to have a fight or anything like that. No. It doesn't feel like it actually belongs there. It doesn't feel like it actually belongs anywhere. No. And I think that's a problem with the script as well as the production. And this is the thing that baffles me, because in talking about the Renegade version, where they had the opportunity to shoot new scenes... Why did they not go back and sort all this stuff out? Because they had Christopher Lambert, they had Virginia Madsen, and they had Michael Ironside, which are all the characters you need to redo some of these bits and make the connections much stronger, or just take some of them out and just make new scenes that connect the things together. I would have rather they went back and actually just refilmed some character scenes. Yeah. Some, like, quieter moments. Maybe some character motivational scenes, Mm. you know, just to kind of flesh those things out, rather than add this arbitrary action sequence that doesn't really go anywhere. No. It's such a waste of resources and an opportunity. I think this is the creative people sometimes not understanding what needs to be done and what needs to be said yeah. in order to make this film speak to anybody on a just a general movie level. There's certain things that are missing, even from the final version of the film, that would that would make this a good film, basically. Yeah. But I think that's part of the problem as well, is that Highlander is a very simple film, like almost straightforward in terms of story. It's the way that it's told that is uh, mixes things up. Yeah. But it's easy to follow. It's very straightforward. Yeah. And well-defined in that way. Mm. With Highlander 2, because they're dealing with all of these different themes and ideas and story elements that are both convoluted and kind of underexplained as well at Mm. times, I think that's where it fails in this regard, is they're still treating it like this 
very simplistic story that you can just drive through, mm. but it isn't. I think at the end of the day, despite all the problems they had in Argentina and despite all the problems they had in editorial, this is another film that started off production without having the script locked down. No. Okay, so I think we've tied ourselves up with the film for long enough. But now it's time to take a look at the stats and facts. Maybe there we'll find more answers as to why this film has been forgotten, as if they were hidden. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so first off, going over to the critics, it will not surprise you whatsoever to find out that this film did not fare well with the critics. Not at all. (laughs) It has a Rotten Tomatoes score of not one, not two, but 0%, with an average rating of 2.7 out of 10. That's after 23 reviews. And just to go off the audience score as well, it's a 23% from the audience. <clears throat> so, yeah, it's about the same in terms of like judging it. Yeah, I think the, the 2.7, 23% is a more accurate reflection than the 0%. Yeah. This is a film with some merit in a lot of aspects of the film in terms of the ideas and uh, the production design and some of the cinematography. They have been trying. Yeah, yeah, it's it's tucked it's away a, in there, but there, there is some merit and there's something admirable about their intentions yeah, and making the uh, film the way they did. It's not creatively redundant. It's uh, no Adam Sandler film. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to go over to Roger Ebert, who gave this uh, film the lowest score he could possible, which was 0.5 out of 4, we actually have a clip from his review of Highlander 2, and I highly recommend you listen to it. Yeah, this is from Siskel and Ebert at the movies, so let's just let it play. And now my choice for the single worst film of 1991, which Gene has already said has the worst title of the year, yeah. Highlander 2, The Quickening. Now, this was the sequel to the original Highlander, not such a bad title, a cult film in some circles, but you'd have to be more than a cultist, you'd have to be a zombie to enjoy part two, The Quickening. The movie takes place at a time in the future when the Earth's ozone layer has been depleted and the planet huddles, huddles under some kind of protective shield that's administered by an evil international cartel. The film stars Sean Connery and Christopher Lambert as two immortals from the planet Zeist who find themselves in the middle of this situation. The plot of Highlander 2, The Quickening, is one of the most hilariously incomprehensible experiences I've had in a long time. This movie shows real evidence of having been edited almost at random. Let's take out this and this. And the science in the movie is just as crazy. I think in a way what got me, though, was the interlocking of all of these plots. The immortals from the planet Zeist who are caught in a time warp of their own involving the fact that they got oriented in Scotland 500 years ago plus events in uh, the year 1999 and more events in the year 2025 plus the cartel plus the ozone shield plus the mysterious killer plus the beautiful independent scientist who exposes the secret of the ozone you know in a way all of this insanity could have added up to something that would have made a great bad movie but Highlander 2 was so crazily put together you get the impression that a lot of the key scenes were just never filmed. It is pretty incomprehensible. The only question I have is something you said earlier, which is that you'd have to be a zombie to enjoy this, and I'm not exactly sure why a zombie would. Well, you know, as a matter of fact, I don't think a zombie would like this film. That's how closely I listened. Probably proves why you didn't like it. That's it it for this week. So, yeah, very much a scathing review there from Roger Ebert. (laughs) Utterly scathing. That's actually probably one of of the more famous clips of Roger Ebert on uh, that program that's uh, so notorious that when uh, Highlander 2 ever gets brought up, that's one of the things that uh, does sometimes get replayed. I actually find it hard to disagree with him in regards to the theatrical cut in that. Yeah, especially to the American cut, which he would have seen. Yeah, (laughs) that's the cut that they're referring to it is legendarily bad it does make me a little bit sad for the filmmakers because although like i said before the film even in its final version is still a bit all over the place 
you would have been utterly disheartened to have seen that version of the film go out into theatres. There's the famous story of Russell Mulcahy walking out of the theatre 15 minutes into the premiere of the film. Yeah. And I can totally understand why. Well, that's it. The theatrical version of the film isn't the version of the film that any of the filmmakers involved in it want you to see. No. And uh, just to go one more further with uh, Empire, and this is Kim Newman, he gave the film two out of five and said... With a plot that swallows itself, a series of story premises that will have you scratching your head, and some very tired visual fireworks from director Russell Mulcahy, who seems to have graduated from promising to has been without passing through success. (laughs) And I had to use that line because I think it's actually sadly rather apt. It is very, yeah. I mean, going back to accurate. Yeah, he hasn't directed a cinematic film since Resident Evil Extinction. There are massive gaps between Highlander 2 and Resident Evil Extinction. Yeah. He seems to be a director DVD filmmaker now. Yeah, I think he tried to resurrect his career... A couple of years later with The Shadow, which is another film we'll be doing uh, very soon. But again, that ultimately failed as well. So I think since then, really, he's um, definitely been lost in direct-to-DVD hell. And the last thing is uh, IMDb rating, 4 out of 10. Which, I'd say, is kind of fair. Fair, yeah. So, on to the box office. Right, so this gets a little bit complicated given that there's uh, two versions of the film that are out there at the same time. But the uh, budget of this film, which we're saying it skyrocketed quite a lot, and given that they did make this film in Argentina and were meant to save money, this film still ended up costing $34 million. Which is back in the late 80s. It's still quite a lot of money. Quite a lot of money, yeah. Yeah. So in terms of um, US grosses, and this is total lifetime grosses, it made roughly around about $15.5 million in the US. Just made over $5 million its open weekend. And it was released to about a thousand theaters at that time, so quite a wide release, actually. For yeah, that time. it is. It is. For, uh, yeah, for the time, mm. it's um, it's actually made a little bit more than I thought it would. Yeah, considering again, this is the late eighties. Fifteen million translates to probably about three times that now. Mm. It's actually made a little bit more than I thought it could. Wonder if it's just on the coattails of the first Highlander film, which yeah. was a cult success by this point. And uh, in its opening weekend, it was uh, it opened to number three. Okay. And it's interesting to note some of the films that were around it, because there's uh, quite a few forgotten films around here. We've got uh, Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs. Definitely. Definitely a contender. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got Curly Sue, which I have no idea what that film is. Never heard of it. It seems to be a Warner Brothers film. Uh, We've got Billy Bathgate uh, at number four, just under Highlander. Don't know it. House Party 2. That sounds like a Uh, a crazy film. I know House Party 2. The only film that I recognise out of this, apart from People Under the Stairs, The Fisher King at number nine. Yeah, Terry Gilliam. Yep, uh, great film. Awesome uh, film. The Butcher's Wife. The Butcher's Wife, eh? Now. Have a butcher's of that. Right, so that's based on the US release. Yes. Now, in terms of Highlander 2's performance in comparison to the original Highlander, where it was much more popular in other territories, it's worldwide gross, bearing in mind that the domestic gross was $15.5 million. The worldwide gross was $30 million. We're basically talking that the film made $14.5 to $15 million in other territories. Yeah. Now, that seems to me like quite a big drop-off compared to what the original Highlander would have made in the other territories. It's taken, yeah, it's taken a real hit. It's not hard to see why. Yeah, it does seem like all those other territories that they were banking on were really just left them behind. I mean, I I have to ask you, 
would you recommend somebody see this film? Imagine it's 1991, you're going to the cinema. Oh, you yeah. see Highlander 2, you see this. That, that theatrical <laughs> version of it, the mess that mm. is Highlander 2. Would you recommend it to anybody? Oh, absolutely not. Well, the only person I'd recommend it to is you because, like myself, you have an interest in movies that are failures in very interesting ways. But I still wouldn't recommend you go to the cinema to yeah, see it. Yeah, I mean, this is what I think happened because the main reason that the renegade version exists is because of home video markets not because of the performance of the film theatrically now if you said that sentence again i would have shown you that film but on video yeah that would have been the correct thing that you would have done at the time when it came out on video and we would have probably rented it or bought it at that time and i think this is what caused the renegade version because although the film was a failure at the box office it made quite a lot of money on home video when people like myself back in the 90s film buffs and people into these yeah. kind of genre films would have been it's like their curiosity has been peaked yeah. they want to see just how this film is a failure yeah people are talking about it as being a legendary failure mm. and you just want to see can it can it possibly be that bad yeah and it's quite funny that the renegade version probably got made because of this curiosity I yeah, think, yeah really definitely. rather than see it being that. a uh, what they thought was a positive reception, I think it's probably more of people wanting to examine this car crash. It's people like us that have turned Tommy Wiseau's The Room into a moneymaker. Yes. So <laughs> I can't see how Highlander 2 would have made enough money to actually go on to warrant different cuts. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about the film and discussed the critical reception and box office, but are you any closer to understanding why Highlander 2 has been forgotten? I think we are. Yeah, I think in a mainstream sense, this film will always be remembered as that really bad film. Yeah. Because although the Renegade version and the director's cut have restored the film's reputation somewhat as a not a really terrible film, but just a deeply flawed film. Yeah. It's only really going to be recognized as that kind of film in the um, cult film world. Yeah. Whereas on a mainstream level, it's always going to be remembered for the original release. So I think that's the main reason why it's been forgotten. It's kind of that film that always gets talked about in hushed tones. Yeah, I definitely see why it's been forgotten because of the theatrical version of the film. But I can also see why it has encountered something of a resurgence because it is one of those legendarily bad films. And I say that in terms of bad films as in... um, Big budget bad films. Yeah, because definitely. Yeah. This is a film again that's had a lot of money and a lot of skill put into it, and still yeah. falls short. And we can't really compare it to things like The Room because yes, not, uh, no, they're on a completely different level entirely. But yeah, in terms of your big budget bad film, then that, yeah, this is definitely a benchmark. Yeah, the most interesting bad films that usually come about are those that are made by good filmmakers. Mm. And this is a film that's got a lot of talent involved in the making of it. Yeah. So it leads us to asking more questions as to why it ended up the way that it did. But in its favour, I will say that it's at least, in any of its forms, never boring. No. Because it may be bad, it may be god-awful at times, but I'm still very much engaged as to how it actually happened. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I can see why it's been forgotten, but I can also see why it started to get something of a resurgence over the years. And I guess that leaves me to ask the final question. Is Highlander 2 The Quickening salvageable in any of its forms? Is it one of the best of the forgotten movies, or is it simply best forgotten? Uh, You want me to go first with this one? Yeah, you go first this time. I think I am a little bit more confident in really saying what it is, but I still think in any of its forms, it's still best forgotten 
Now, that's not to say that the Renegade Court or the Director's Court, let's say, is not without its charm. I think it's a much better version of the film. It's a definitely taking strides towards completion, even if it introduces a few elements that I wish it didn't. But even at its best, I think that this version of the film would have still missed the mark because of just how many ideas they were working with. And just because it's flawed at its conception, it would have never been good enough. No. But I think I'm going to have to agree with you because prior to going into this episode and re-watching the film, because I hadn't seen the film properly for about a year and a half, before that I was maybe thinking that this would be one of the best forgotten films. But actually have, having watched the American cut and then the um, director's cut and then discussing this film with you today, I'm definitely going to have to agree with you because I think... It's worth for fans of science fiction and fantasy and yeah. of Highlander to watch this film with a morbid curiosity. Yeah. Because it's definitely a curiosity. <laughs> it is. Uh, there's definitely people I would recommend watch this film. Uh, yeah. Again, you can't knock it for not being entertaining because for all its faults, it's got a lot of fun moments. Yeah. But going back to my comments about if anybody ever remade this film, I still hope that somebody of quality would have a look at this material because I still think it's incredibly interesting and would make for a really good franchise, actually. It would still make a great franchise. Even as the screenwriter of this film says, there's so many places you can take it, and I still love that central idea of that man who lives forever. Yeah, and I do hope that whoever takes it over is willing to take left turns and to take risks and to take the series off in completely unpredictable avenues yeah because if they use it to pander to fans it will turn out like these reboots always do in that it will end up being just completely bland at its best yeah and forgotten within the year yeah and we only have to look as far back as robocop to see that so i do hope that whoever takes over really does kind of embrace the unpredictability that they did try with highlander 2 yeah although i hate the term i think in doing something like this, I think the term reboot would be better than remake yes. with this particular film. I think you could take some of the familiar elements, you could take a Ramirez-type character and some of the ideas, but I wouldn't want them just to remake this film like in terms of the original Highlander because that's just pointless. Um, I just hope whoever does take it over listens to this podcast and uh, <laughs> uh, reevaluates their life. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, to conclude, I think what we're saying is Highlander 2, the quickening in all of its forms is best forgotten. Mm-hmm. But it's probably worth a second watch just to see how much has changed since you last saw Highlander because it might not be the version you remember anymore. Yeah. And, and it's I, definitely interesting. And I would say if you are interested in watching this version of the film, I would thoroughly recommend the Director's Cut DVD package with all the documentaries on because it does give a lot of insight into how this film was made and uh well gives you that last version of the film that's quite intriguing definitely and that's all we have time for in today's episode of best forgotten movies be sure to like share and subscribe you can also find us on facebook and twitter at b4 movies so please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes and join us next week when we'll be watching the film that jamie lee curtis described as an all-time piece of shit (laughs) we're watching jamie lee curtis in virus yeah but until then it's bye from me and ciao from andy ciao charlie <laughs> thanks for listening
not even a penguin. <laughs>